here we are together of feeling of starting the meditation day in some way. Each moment is a new beginning, but this time at the freshness of the morning and the instructions and us all here has a special quality. Maybe you can sense the quietness and stillness in the meditation hall. The small sounds coming and going. to remind ourselves that we're here to practice and meditate for the benefit of ourselves to discover that best self, the enlightened molliness or fill in the blank your namishness. Carrying all the history and life identity and yet also knowing that there's the aspect of each human being that's beyond that. We say beyond, it may be within or something that we can touch upon in this meditation practice and that we're here to develop a deeper relationship with that isn't separate from the particulars of the moment in our life. So however your deeper intention may feel to you, you can let that arise and inform your time in this hall right now or your day or your life. And as an aspect or facet of that deeper intention, then we take the path of meditation and concentration to let the mind-body connection be active through noticing the breathing or noticing your body sensations, whatever way you find to come into your lived experience in the moment. as George has called it, the eye of the hurricane, that steadiness of presence. So let's say if we're talking about the classic progression of the instructions, I'll briefly go through them again. This would be a good chance to go through them in fullness, but if you're already off in your own direction, practicing in your own way, whatever fortifies you, um, you can allow my voice to be empty sound.
But many people will love to develop a deeper relationship with our breath, whether the belly or the nose. Noticing how the sensations of coolness and warmth and touch appear and disappear as this body is naturally breathing, taking in what it needs and exchanging with the environment, letting go of what isn't needed, but is needed by the plants, as Wes said. We're breathing all together. Noticing the breath allows a maybe a sense of home or kind of knowing what we're doing when we can get buffeted a little bit or lost and where our awareness may not be as strong. So to know where we're coming back to for some of us is a great thing. And a closer observation of what what does the breath actually feel like? Can I connect and sustain connection with each breath? And even the pause that sometimes comes between the in-breath and the out-breath. And then let's say that there's a strong sensation in the body, maybe somewhere that calls the attention We can empower our awareness to turn directly with caring attention to whatever strong sensation that might be. To acknowledge it with this ongoing steadiness of heart and mind in a balanced way to sort of go to that sensation and surround it or enfold it or explore it with this loving and caring attention. You might give it a shot of loving kindness if the sensation's quite strong. Noticing if with a strong sensation there thoughts about the past and the future or evaluations or the beginnings of grasping or aversion and just noticing how the mind responds and seeing if it's possible to respond with this steady, calm presence to all of that. And should the mind, should there be many thoughts or the sensation may lose its grip on the attention, then it's 
Nice to go back to the anchor of the breath. You can go back to the breathing whenever you need to. Should there be an emotion or a quality of some, what in Javanese spirituality they call the burning of the heart? (coughs) It's also fine, just as if with a strong physical sensation to turn toward it, acknowledge, Try to find the grace and steadiness to be with it as if you were with a suffering child or however, if there's any imagery or reminders that allow you to have the steadiness and courage to feel that suffering. We've taught a a bit about this. But as we explore and find balance with this, difficult moods or difficult times in practice that we learn what's really needed and we deepen our character. And each of us, we hope through the practice itself and the relationships with, the, with us as best we've been able to serve you will have developed some of your own skills in this area, we hope. how to find and nurture a balanced, open-hearted, warm connection with suffering when it comes up in all its various forms. Sensing it through the body is a wonderful skill to remember because it brings us back to our anchor in present moment. And then there are all the beautiful feelings of spaciousness and joy and tranquility that we might not even clearly notice. But it can be very joyful when the mind can feel steady or clear. So there's the invitation also to drink from those states when they arise. Acknowledge them. Again with steadiness and calm. Should the mind desire to sort of latch on and cling, you can see that natural wish to Hold it and maybe open the, relax the grasping hand of the mind. Just allow the state to be free, free through you, free in you.
but don't take those beautiful moments for granted. It's also quite fine to weep in the hall or laugh a little bit if that's what comes through. And last of all the objects, let's say we've talked about the breath, body sensations. We could include sounds in those sense store objects. We've talked about moods or this opening to what feels easy or difficult, noticing our reaction response steadying. And then there's all the wonderful parade of thoughts and all their shapes and sizes. When we wake up almost always in the middle of a thought like, oh wow, look where I am, I'm at a birthday party or going home in my mind or in my phone or with my child or worrying or remembering Often in the beginning there's that almost startling moment of recognition. It's really, that's an awakening moment, so it's time to, time to just pause and see what that feels like and rejoice and befriend. We're lucky to have a mind that can think. And it too is a product of the million year picnic that we are all part of. So this too is a place to find that steadiness of mind and rejoicing and gratitude. And you may like to come back to the breathing after that moment of appreciation, you can see what happens with the thought. So for today, to really look at that ability to notice how we're relating to what's happening and to bring what you know best from the deep wisdom of your heart and mind.
Just a couple of words about the day. Um, it was supposed to be cold and windy and we were hoping for that to tell you like stay in your practice. And But here you can be invited to be, if whatever the weather, to remain in, in the spirit of the retreat. Um, there's the parable of the strawberry. I don't know if you all know that where back in the time when human beings still had animals as our predators and weren't the only top predator left. But anyway, so this person's being chased by a tiger. And to get away from the tiger, they jump over a cliff and then they grab onto this plant that's hanging on the cliff. And they look down and there are some rocks and some more tigers down at the bottom. And they notice that there's this beautiful strawberry there. And as the plant is coming out by its roots one by one, they eat their strawberry. And then they donate their bodies to the tigers down below, I guess. But, you know, the retreat is coming to an end and you might notice that the, our mind, which is basically kind of a problem-solving machine, always trying to take care of us in some way, maybe shooting forward to the homecoming or something like that, or the what's it going to be like out there. And We'll be talking about that um, and giving some guidance and instruction. So please don't... Um, worry too much about that. We'll try to help, you know, some connection for the transition um, on the appropriate day. The retreat keeps getting deeper, as you may have noticed, and if you stay in, in the process, um, this is kind of the richest time toward the end because you've built up a lot of momentum. Continuity is really um, one of the best ways of deepening practice. So whether your awareness goes from very focused to very light and open, just to feel like you're sort of connecting. Um, and a light sort of internal sense of embodiment is a good thing that to develop, especially if you are thinking about when we leave here, like to sense your embodiment through all the different dance postures that you go through in the day. Um, that might be something to work with. There's There will be another... Um, meeting in the sanctuary for uh, people who identify as people of color today at two o'clock, which is a similar invitation as the previous meeting. And you don't have to have attended the previous meeting uh, to attend this one if you uh, identify as a person of color and are curious about that. And for members of the white community who are interested in working with racism and deconstructing, working against racism and deconstructing our white privilege and stuff, we'll be having a group meeting about that on the last day, as well as um, led and facilitated by me. I think it may be one of the first ones at a retreat, so I'm kind of excited about that to see what happens if you were interested in what might be happening in the group of people of color, we can do that um, as white people too. So stay away from the get magnetized to the white people's group. There's a very big diversity amongst white people as well. Noah will also be offering a, a group for um, to explain refuge recovery on that same time in the last day. So there'll be some affinity groups and opportunities for that type of uh, connection later. And as for questions, I wonder if you would be willing to allow me to answer one of the one or two of the questions that were on the bulletin board um, not in a sort of a mocking sense but it's 
tenderly amusing to see some of the questions that come on the notice board on little pieces of paper like this. Like, um, this one. If the teachings of the Buddha could shed light on these two questions, I would be very grateful. If all effects have causes, what was the first cause? <laughs> what started this show of life, the universe and suffering? And I'm going to uh, go on to the second question in this because it's intimately linked to the first one and is also kind of like, this is the whole Dharma teaching here, how these two connect. Um, I experience dissatisfaction and everything. No moment is satisfying enough in this scriptless show. How did my consciousness get into this? I'm slightly paraphrasing. Um, interest in this question amongst the general population. Um, well, let's say the Buddha was actually asked these questions um, and his response to if all effects have causes, what is the first cause um, is let's look at the ending of suffering, not trying to uh, wring your mind out to figure out how could there be, what would be the first cause, like the turtles all the way down question. Now in our you know, outer cosmological sense, there's people who are scratching away at what could have happened before the Big Bang, but maybe for our own purpose, we could say um, if everything started with the Big Bang, then something that starts also has to have an end. Even our universe will, uh, universe's energy will get extinguished at some point. But if you look into modern cosmology, there's a universe in which I did marry Reginald August and my boyfriend from 10th grade, and we're having tea somewhere in some other bubble, but we don't, that's the reason why we don't think too much about this stuff in the meditation practice. <laughs> um, so it's more interest, there's a greater interest in the subjective side in this, in Buddhism to say like, what is the origin of suffering and what is the end of suffering? And in that sense, the origin of suffering is um, in this uh, mental toxins that greed, hate, hatred, and delusion that we also have the sort of original piece of humanity that came in with us that tends to grasp and cling and hate and have the 37 problems that we've all been discussing and tussling with here. And there's we combat that through the practice of awareness and love and we find how we can calm down or if there's a time when we feel really in a lot of pain, how to find compassion in ourselves, outside ourselves, how to find that eightfold path life, as George was saying, you really, we really have to live this to discover what um, there is. The script, the show actually does have a script. It's the, um, there is a kind of law, lawfulness about the way this unfolds. It may be ownerless, but not scriptless. And we have the opportunity to make some choices about what's most skillful and uh, doesn't, keep repeating the cycle of suffering and find our way a little bit out of that. There, we do have some individual agency in, in that, um, which is what we're trying to learn how to do here, to relate to our experience in a way that's more loving and kind. So bringing an end is the interesting part in that. Um, I think maybe since we, um, it's so fun to have an open slight dialogue here, then maybe this, there's another little question, not little, there's another huge question here that I will try to address on a piece of paper of this size um, for the person. 
<laughs> but if anyone would like to say anything or ask a question now, we can have this community, morning community meeting here. Yes. <laughs> because it's something that um, you know it's a big piece of our culture uh-huh. and I've been known to have a cup of coffee from time to time and do you think I should stick with drip or switch to It sounds like maybe you should, you could um, enlighten us in the room. What's the effect on you in, in your practice? Well, I get, um, I get, uh, I get more meditating than faster. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, at, at MIT, when he came to MIT, His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, said to the scienti- assembled scientists that it is your job to develop a compassion pill so that we can all just take it and be... So maybe coffee is um, something like that. But I think anything that's beneficial for oneself, like that's to be understood through our own experience. And for some people, coffee doesn't feel that way feels too, you know, it probably depends on your nervous system. So I don't have the answer for that. You all do. You each do. But there's not, you know, there's certainly nothing in the text. I don't think there was coffee in the Buddha's time. And in India, there was coffee, I think it was discovered in Yemen. But anyway, that's a, it was a, just a different culture's drink. So um, I think here... I will repeat the question. The question was um, based on last night's Dharma talk or just the general ones? Uh, yeah. So the question was about the recognition of impermanence that all things arise and pass away. And having read in some uh, suttas that the Buddha didn't wish to be reborn, and does this bring us to a sense of nihilism, that it doesn't matter if we practice mindfulness or not. Um, And how might I have worked with that? Um, I'm 
I'm playing with being more um, self-disclosing in my practice. So I would say that in the beginning of meditation, I had, I w- my mind would have a tendency to attach to one thing that I heard very strongly and not always hear something else. So when I heard that the present moment was the only thing that mattered, that allowed me to do a lot of very unwholesome things because <laughs> the consequences didn't matter. It was only how I felt right now. And I think I was in my 20s and that was not good. So <laughs> I could have... Now I'm going to draw the curtain of self-disclosure about what that behavior actually was. But um, <laughs> but that's also slightly different from the question. In the, in the teachings, there's the encouragement to explore for ourselves, And if it seems to you that the reflecting on impermanence brings a quality of nihilism that isn't healthy or isn't actually somehow part of your internal sense of what would be a wise and compassionate response to the world, then there's definitely quite a lot in the suttas and in the whole uh, spread of Buddhist literature where this topic was actually a topic of concern for people who came before us in this tradition, where then there would be teachings of compassion and um, the Mahayana arose as, in a certain sense, to say, like, well, wouldn't someone who was really caring about the suffering of all beings uh, come back as a Buddha later, you know, like to be reborn again and again just to, in order be, to try to help. The Buddha, at least in his own lifetime, which is the lifetime that we all recognize that similar to our lifetime, after he had accomplished what would be called the benefit for himself in achieving enlightenment and an end of suffering in himself, then he dedicated the rest of his lifetime to teaching and hoping to share what he knew with others. So I'll close the answer with, um, there's the image of the two wings of the bird or the two legs of the person that, um, of most people, um, that with the wing of wisdom, which is what you're describing about the, just knowing that everything that arises passes away, can, that can also be a very soothing or interesting topic to explore. What does impermanence mean and how does it feel and does it sometimes bring sorrow like for the ending of a retreat or a life or a job or a relationship? What's our relationship to that? Then to touch that suffering with compassion is the other wing and then the bird can fly with using the wings of both wisdom and compassion. And if you only have one, then it doesn't, it's sort of a, needs some rehabilitation help or something. And they have that in the Christian tradition too. If um, you know, if my voice is like a golden bell and I have no charity, then it doesn't make a sound or something. I can't remember that quotation, but people may know that wisdom and compassion are important. Yeah, and then there. Yes, you were the first person I saw back there. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Well, can... Yeah. I would, yeah, I would say that um, it's just interesting to observe how profoundly your attention practice is um, shifting and moving different kinds of energy in your body, like that you're getting some close observation there. And I would suggest that, just a quick response as we're, I don't know if I wanted one more question, but to just notice the tension with a, as it, Pulls your, as it pulls your awareness away, it seems like it becomes kind of obvious that this is happening. So just place attention there without the agenda of relaxing, but a kind of relaxed attention and see what that interaction does on its own. Like if there's a new type of process and when you relate to the tension with just that calm awareness, rather than saying like, I'm going to relax that. You know what I mean? And see what happens from there. There's nothing wrong with relaxing it. Um, and the idea that you're slightly attached to the sense of concentration, that can be okay. You know, so I, you see the attachment to what you thought was a good process before. I say just play around in that zone and see what happens. Like try some different things. But, I, but just see what happens if you place your attention on the tension itself without having an agenda of any kind and if something happens based on that. Um, I will take one more question, though. We're a little over the time, if it can be a quickie from the... I hope it's not the origin of the universe again. Uh, hey. Yeah. Yeah. You felt you were doing given what? Did you say? For yeah. Uh huh. Oh. That sounds. It sounds as if it, it was good for you to shift to the chest and maybe you'd like to stay with that for your practice. If sometimes um, people... That's not necessarily a scientific thing. It's more like if you have some trauma associated with breathing, as you would if you have asthma, that there's times when different ways of uh, attending to your breath in different places or your body may be helpful because if... I had, for example, one student who almost drowned. So in the beginning of her practice, she, it was better for her to pay attention to her hands than to her breathing. So I would say that it, it sounds as if maybe when you had um, the attention in your nose, that some of the fears and associations with having a, 
an illness related to breathing came into the picture. So if you find another place where you can feel anchored, that would be good. And that's a wise choice. Does that make sense? More or less? Um, if you like, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Is her brain controlling her breath, or is her breath of chemistry yeah. affecting her brain? That's right. Oh, the question is, um, Noah's helping me clarify, is the brain controlling the breath, or is the breath controlling the brain? I think it's a, right? a mutual... Yeah. Thank you. It's a mutual. It's an interactive thing. Actually, Noah, do you have a I good answer for that? <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-way street. You know, the, bre- the breath is kind of in between an unconscious and a conscious process so that we notice that our emotions affect our breathing, right? That sometimes when there's something happening in the mind or the brain or the heart or the emotions, then the, then the breath shifts according to that. So I would say it's both. That, you know, if anybody feels like we can't breathe, then we get scared. And sometimes if we're scared, then the breath changes. So um, it's a, it goes back and forth. Is that better? <laughs> I think it's an exploration. And if you wanted to talk more about it, we can, you could ask, we could have an actual conversation um, that could go into more depth, maybe. Thanks. Oh, Franz, yeah, finish. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.